verses 5 through 19, and then next week we'll look at 20 through the end of the chapter. Uh, but just know that, that as we move through this, it's going to continue to build as we go. Jesus is going to continue to build on what he's saying. Luke chapter 21, uh, beginning in verse 5. Let's hear God's word together. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. There will be terror and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your word, uh, Lord, we pray for wisdom. Uh, We pray for uh, the proper insight as we consider these things, these things that Jesus predicts. Uh, Lord, help us to to rest uh, securely in what you have said. Uh, Lord, you are, uh, as we have have heard this morning, uh, Lord, you give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Uh, And so as we consider these words, Lord, that's our prayer, that that we would have just that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking to the future to change today. Uh, Well, I often feel like, and I'm sure you do too, that that if I could just get a, a glimpse of the future... Uh, maybe just an inkling of what today's consequences, what, what, choice, what, what today's choices, what consequences they might bring. If I could have that, that many of my problems, certainly most of my anxieties, uh, they would be resolved almost immediately, right? Uh, you know, if I could look down the corridor of time and know for a fact that one day Greek and Hebrew will end. That, that one day I will hold a certificate that says that I have graduated from seminary. That one day I will no longer bear the yoke of student. If I knew that that day for sure was coming, and look, it's not in any danger, it's coming, but, but if I knew it for a fact, then you would think that that, that might uh, give me some peace of mind, right? It might give me some assurance. In fact, it might make me just the least bit footloose and fancy-free. It might just change my whole perspective on everything. In other words, we assume, and really it should be true, as I said to the kids down here earlier, that knowledge of the future, it should affect our perspective today. It should change the way 
that we see things, the way we approach our lives. It should change the way that we live. Now, as all of you know, and you know it too well, we are not usually afforded that sort of future knowledge, right? We're not usually afforded foresight into, into the things that are to come, especially the specific details of our lives. But you know, in God's providence, as we look to Scripture, what we find is that the future, while it still may be the least bit murky for us, it's not completely unknown. In fact, in sort of broad terms, we know exactly what awaits us, both in terms of the world and in terms of our own individual lives. God has given us, as he's going to do over the next two weeks, he's given us prophecy after prophecy. He's given us assurance upon assurance. He's even given us a whole book, right? The book of Revelation that sits at the end that tells us the truth of what is to come, a sure truth, a sure plan that he is unfolding. And so in many ways, we should have a wonderful assurance. In many ways, we should be footloose and fancy free. I don't have to tell you that the truth is, for most of us, even as Christians, we are not that. Far from being assured, it seems that we are sort of anxiety-ridden, that we are more unsure than we have ever been. And the glimpses that God has given us into the future often only seem to contribute to that sense of unease. Nothing causes us more trepidation than the book of Revelation, right? It shouldn't be that way, but that's the reality. I I feel it as a pastor, and I know it from you too. Nothing causes us more anxiety or discontent than trying to figure out the specifics of God's future prophecies, of of his future plan. Some will say that these events mean this. Others say that governments correspond to this. And still others will say that they figured out the specific dates, the specific timelines of when all of this is going to take place. It's sort of like in those uh, like investigative movies when you, they walk in the room and they've got the poster on the wall and they've got all the yarn going every which direction, all the red yarn. Well, in this case, it's like we've walked into a room and there's yarn everywhere. It's on the ceiling, it's on the floors, it's on the wall. So much so that it is impossible to really know, or it seems impossible, to really know anything at all. And so all of God's future assurance, rather than being an anchor for us, it just seems to make us more anxious. Look, clearly God did not intend for it to be this way. His word is meant to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's meant to give us direction and hope. And so I hope we can understand that the problem is not in the revelation itself. It's not in what God has given us. The the, the problem seems to be, and this is what I want to submit to you today, the problem is in the way that, that we read that revelation, the way that we seem to try to apply that revelation. All our efforts to decode, or to fill in the gaps where God has remained silent are actually very unhelpful. And they also completely miss the point that God is trying to make in giving us these predictions in the first place. In turning our eyes to the future. Here's, here's kind of our thrust for today, okay? So hear this. In turning our eyes to the future... 
God is not challenging us to, to unpack everything. He's not challenging us to, to figure out every detail of what is to come. Friends, he's got that under control. He knows what's coming. He's got it. We don't have to figure all of that out. So that's not why he's given this to us. No, he's given it to us so that we might have hope, we might have assurance, and that we might live today as if the things that he has predicted are true. In other words, as I said here, the things that are happening in this passage, they should change the way that we are living. And if you'll notice, that's exactly what Jesus does. When they ask him, Lord, when are all these things going to take place? He didn't really give them a whole lot of detail, right? Instead, he starts telling them, okay, it's coming, so now go do this. Go live this way. Go live like this. And so that's going to be what I want us to focus on. That's going to be our points today. What is it that, that we are to see here? How are we to live in light of the end? Now, before we get into all of those points, let's notice quickly what serves as the catalyst for this whole sort of prophetic conversation. As Jesus is teaching in verse 5, some were looking at the temple. They, they were gazing upon its beauty, and they were talking about how glorious this man-made building was. Now look, we, we can imagine that this was probably a fairly familiar com conversation among Jews. Certainly those in Jerusalem, and probably for those outside of Jerusalem too. You know, there's little doubt that while the, the second temple was not as glorious as Solomon's temple, it was still a, a wondrous thing to behold. For years, these Jews, they had worked to improve and adorn this place of God's dwelling. And clearly, all their efforts had been successful. I want to read to you. So Josephus, he was an early first century Jewish scholar. He wrote this about the, the temple. He said, The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of admiration, for it was completely covered with gold plates, which when the sun was shining on them, glittered so dazzlingly that, the blind, that it blinded the eyes of beholders, not less than when one gazed on the sun's rays themselves. And on the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such a pure white that no strangers who had, ev had never previously seen them, from a distance at least, they looked like a mountain of snow. So again, the, the point of that is this clearly was something to behold. The temple was a beautiful structure. It was something worth seeing. A piece of architectural, it was a marvel. It was something that, that the Jews had taken great pride in. It's interesting that we just read the second commandment. And now here we are talking about the temple that was so beautifully adorned. And how these people were kind of bragging about this temple that was so beautifully adorned. And so you can imagine uh, the, the shock that they had given how they felt about this place when Jesus says in verse 6 that their prized work, the sign of their religious superiority to all of the world, this is the place of God's dwelling, that it would soon be destroyed. Now, coming on the heels of what we saw last week in our sermon, the, the warning against these well-adorned scribes, the, the praise that Jesus gives to the widow's might, 
we can understand why this would be the case, why the temple might be destroyed. Like so much of their religion, that, that was actually just kind of dressed up and beautiful on the outside, the temple had become a place of hypocrisy. We've already seen that when Jesus comes in and drives out the money changers, right? We, we've discussed the, the kind of things that were going on in this place that was supposed to be God's dwelling. It was beautiful on the outside, but it had lost all of its meaning on the inside. No longer was it a place to worship God, but it seems that it had been a place that had become worshipped. Right? They were worshipping the place itself. In short, it, it was a sign of the people's cold and unrighteous hearts. Hearts that would soon not only reject God, but would reject the Messiah, reject, reject the true temple. And so Christ here, who is that Messiah, he says, God will, as a result of all of these things, pour out his judgment. He will destroy the temple. No stone will be left on the other. And again, if you know your history, we've mentioned this several times, but if you know your history, you know this actually did take place. In A.D. 70, uh, Rome came in and decimates the temple. It destroys it completely. Even to this day, there is no temple in that place, and it's because of these events that, have, that Jesus predicts. Now, it's that shocking sort of backdrop that is the, the background for us today. And notice, to their credit, the disciples, they receive and they accept this news uh, with surprising ease. Now, even for them, the temple would have been a special place, right? Uh, yes, they had been with Jesus for all these years. Yes, they had heard him speak and teach, and they understood to some degree who he was. But the temple still would have had significance for them. So when he says it's about to be destroyed, we might expect them to say, what? You know, that, no, that can't be true. But instead, what we see is that they say, well, well when will these things take place? They, they ask the question that we all ask when we read the book of Revelation, when we read these prophecies. When and how, what are the signs that these things are coming? Now, one last thing by way of introduction. It's important to note that, that Jesus' response to that question is somewhat complex, and it's somewhat difficult to, to follow along as you weave through this argument that he's about to make. Uh, throughout the, the prophecies, these and really all of Scripture, there is what we might call sort of a dual application. Now, what I, what I mean by that is there is an immediate application. There's an immediate fulfillment to this present audience. And again, that's the case with most biblical prophecy, and we would do well to recognize the context that these things are given in. Because usually that is a key to understanding the other application, which is a, a future, kind of general, broad, to all of God's people application. So here, particularly, as Jesus is speaking about the, the coming of the destruction of the temple, there is this immediate application to them. These people are about to experience these things in their time. But as we step back, we also realize that these things apply God's judgment, what God's people will face as the end comes. There's a broader application that applies to all of God's people throughout time until he returns. 
me give you one example of this. I think it will be helpful. So we all understand, uh, the, we, or we are familiar with the, the uh, prophets of the Old Testament, right? So you think about Ezekiel, you think about Jeremiah, particularly you think about Isaiah. And Isaiah comes in and he gives his prophecy, a prophecy that was clearly, clearly applicable to the people he was speaking to. There at the beginning of that book, he promises them exile. Sure enough, in 722, it comes. Exile comes to Israel. Later on, it will come to the southern kingdom. Judah will, will also have exile, right? But we also recognize in that book that there's more going on, right? There is the suffering servant who is coming. There is a Messiah. So clearly the book is pointing us ahead to Jesus. But then if you read that book also, you're going to see things about the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, which is applying us all the way to the end, right? And so really, in that one book, there is at least three applications of the prophecies that, that Isaiah is giving to the immediate people, to Jesus, and then all the way to the end. And so look, I, I'm, I'm making a big deal out of this just to say that as we read through this, as you read through any biblical prophecy, context is important. You have to understand that there was, even a book like Revelation, it had application to John's day, to the people of John's day, who were about to face persecution, who were the churches he was writing to. Then we can see in it also the application that, that it gives to us, application that we now need to take into consideration. And so we've said, that Jesus says all of these things, makes us a little bit nervous to hear these things. But again, what I want us to recognize is that in saying it, he, he is trying to apply these things to our lives in the here and now so that we will live differently. So notice here, the four don'ts that Jesus gives us. Four don'ts. As he explains what's coming, he gives us those. First, he says, don't be led astray. There in verse 8. Don't be led astray. Now they ask, you know, what, what's the signs of this coming? What will it be like? And Jesus knows that, that when we start talking about future events like this, that that is a time where, where people are going to say a lot of things and do a lot of things and kind of have a little bit of crazy going on. They're going to start, begin to predict all of these events. Some will come and say, I am he, I am Jesus. Others will come and say, this is the time. What does Jesus say? Don't be led astray. Don't go after them. Now, friends, we have, have seen this before in Luke's gospel, and so we won't spend a lot of time on this particular point. But, but again, I just want to emphasize that this is an incredibly needed and relevant warning in our current religious climate. You know, in a world of, of you know, these kind of uh, just... Uh, YouTube preachers in a world of, of specialists, in a world of supposed experts, uh, in a world of left behind, in a world where we in the West are beginning to experience the persecution that God's people have experienced since, he, since Jesus went to, uh, ascended into heaven. We're just now beginning to experience those things. And because of all of that, it's easy for people to get caught up in the, the details of these prophecies. It's easy for us to get led astray. 
Friends, our only sure ground as we approach these topics is God's Word. It's not, you know, prophecies that, that men make. It's not predictions that I make. It's not what I say myself. Our only foundation is what He has said, what He has revealed to us. It's also what He has not said and what He has not revealed to us. I wonder, you know, will we trust Him enough to live with the things that He has made clear? And will we trust Him enough to live with the things that He has not made clear? And certainly there are many things that He has not made clear. But friends, the truth is, is what He has revealed, it is sufficient for us, and He is sufficient for what He has not revealed. And so, we can rest in the Word. We can rest in Him and not be led astray. Secondly, he, he reminds us here, he says, do not be terrified. Now again, they say, what are the, the signs that these things are coming? And notice, the things that Jesus says, uh, it's hard not to be afraid when you hear these things. He says, there will be war. There will be nation fighting against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famine, pestilence. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. In the midst of all of that, God's people, they will be persecuted, imprisoned, judged for Jesus' name's sake. Parents and brothers and relatives, friends, they will all turn against these folks to the point that some, even will, be, some will even be put to death. Now again, let's be honest, that, that's enough uh, to scare a person, right? How can we face these things and not be afraid? How can we know that this is coming uh, and not be the least bit uneasy? Well, three things that, that I would point you to. First, recognize that these, uh, that these things, they are not, uh, they're not random. Uh, they are not just happening out of chance. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he knows and is allowing these events to occur. In other words, he is still in control even as he's giving these predictions, even as he says these things are coming. And so while these events, they may be difficult, we can trust that they are not without purpose. They are not beyond his influence, his, his good purpose for his people. Yes, these things will happen, and yes, we must face them. But we can also trust him, right? Secondly, recognize that these things will not go unpunished. They will not go unaccounted for. If Jesus knows them and if he is in control, uh, then, then when he comes in judgment, we can be sure that there will be a reckoning. He will not, in verse 8, allow one hair on our head to perish. He accounts for all that will happen. He accounts and sees every bit of it. Thirdly, recognize that, that what Jesus, recognize what he will do and what he himself will endure when he says this. Recognize that as he's speaking this, he knows where he's headed. What he predicts for his people is what he will soon experience for our sake. He will be rejected. He will be betrayed. He will be judged and given up by those closest to him. He will be killed so that we might have salvation, so that he might always 
be with us. Friends, because that's true, we don't have to be afraid. We can carry on. So, we don't go astray. Don't be afraid. Thirdly here, don't miss the opportunities to bear witness in Christ's name. Verse 13. All of this is going to happen. You're going to be taken before judges and rulers. There's going to be persecution, imprisonment. All of this, and all of it, Jesus says, will be an opportunity to bear witness for him. All of it will be an opportunity to glorify and praise his name. Again, that that brings up a whole host of questions. On the most basic level, we have to ask, how can hardships, how can persecutions be a good opportunity for our witness for Christ? Well, stop just for a moment and consider the history of the church. Think about the book of Acts. Think about men like Stephen and Paul and Peter and John. Think about that first century of martyrs, of Polycarp and others like him. Think about in our own time when people stand up for the gospel in the face of great persecution. What are the results of that kind of witness? Certainly many will scoff at it, but often just as many are moved by that sort of faith to the point where many come to believe because of these types of circumstances. And so the point here is that God, he wastes nothing. He wastes nothing in his perfect plan. Always he is pushing ahead to the reality of Jesus. Always he is pushing ahead to the end. And so every circumstance of our life, every opportunity, I surrender all, right? They just sang that. That's the point here. Even our hardships, they are an opportunity not to look to ourselves, but they are an opportunity to look out. First to Christ's glory, first to God's glory. And secondly, to the good of others. Recognize that's what Jesus is calling us to here. He's calling us to love others to the point that we're trying to bring them to a knowledge of Christ, even through our hardships. Which is the best way that we can love them. is to tell them the truth. And so, for, for his sake, for the kingdom's sake, we are able to endure. But the, the question again is, is how, the second question is, how can I possibly do that? You know, I'm not sure that that I have enough strength. I'm not sure that I have enough knowledge. What would I say when I got into those circumstances? Well, notice in verses 14 and 15, he says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. In other words, no, you are not sufficient for these things. No, you are not strong enough or knowledgeable enough. All of your preparations that you make, they will not be enough to to do what you need to do. But God is enough. He, He is sufficient enough. He is strong enough. He is prepared enough for what is to come. And here he promises to be with us. Here he promises even to give us the words to say as we face the enemy. As we face persecution, words that will confound them, even words, friends, that, that may open hearts. That's, that's an amazing thing, that God, through us, sinful as we may be, might open the hearts of people around us through persecution, through terrible circumstances. 
you know, we think about Paul here, you know, he says when we are weak, when we are, when we are at our lowest point, God, he, he is still God, and he is still strong. He said, I didn't come with eloquent speech or lofty uh, presentations. That's what he tells the Corinthians. He said, I came preaching Christ and him crucified. And friends, God used that, that, that simple message to change the world. We don't miss the, the opportunity to, to bear witness for him. Opportunities that, that he gives, even under the most difficult of circumstances, and opportunities that he brings success to. Fourth, and finally here, notice that Jesus says, don't give up. Don't give up. There in verse 19. Christ has given us a glimpse into future events, and frankly, the, the picture is not a very good one. It's not a very easy one. You know, again, for these folks in, in this current context, they are going to experience all of this in the near future. Very, very quickly and very swiftly, the Romans are going to turn and they are going to destroy everything. Their families are going to be torn apart. It's going to be an awful, awful circumstance. They're going to be pushed out of Jerusalem, away from their homes. And if you look over the course of church history, this is the reality that so many have faced. So many of our brothers and sisters are facing even now. Things are hard. Many suffer. In the end, many may even lose their lives for their faith. So the temptation is to throw our hands up and say, God, I can't do this. The temptation is to just to, to give up. It's to, to end, to stop right there. But Jesus says, by your endurance, keep going, you will gain your lives. That's interesting to me that, that over the course of the past, I don't know, really since before COVID, this has been the consistent message that God, I feel like, God has given to us as a church. You think that, that we went through the book of Hebrews, which is a book about endurance. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep following. Don't give up. On Wednesday nights right now, we're going through the book of James. The whole first chapter of James is, is about endurance. Keep going. Don't stop. Even, even when the bad things come, take joy in those things. Keep going. Think about a letter like Philippians, a letter I reference constantly, which is a, a letter about Paul's endurance. He keeps going, even under the worst of circumstances. And friends, really, if we were to turn to the book of Revelation, that's what that book is about. Here it is. Keep going. Keep pressing. The Christian life is not one of ease. It's not one where we kick our feet up and we just rest and we stop and we don't do anything. But it is one of patient, persistent perseverance. Continually, day by day, moment by moment, we put our faith in Him who has redeemed us and we press on. We press on in His strength. We press on in His fullness in his sufficiency, knowing that, that we are his children and knowing that whatever may come, he will not stop. He will not let go and he will not abandon his own. Again, as we think about all of the, the, the death that we have faced in the past two weeks, as we're reminded that Jesus promises to get us safely home, safely to his side. He will bring all things to his perfectly ordained end. That's the message of Scripture. 
That's the point of passages like this one that will be before us this week and the one that will be before us next week. Whatever happens, persecution, famine, whatever happens, the end is sure. It is set in stone. We can take it to the bank. Jesus will return in glory and we will be with him. And so knowing that's true, knowing that that is the reality of our lives, as true as anything else we see right now, it has to change everything about today. We can't live the same if we know that this is what is coming. Our lives must reflect the truth of what God has revealed to us. And so, if you are in Christ today, if you're thinking about the end, if you're concerned about what the future may bring, Let me encourage you, as Jesus does here, knowing these things, don't be led astray. Don't be afraid. Don't miss the opportunities to bear witness in his name. Friends, whatever you do, don't give up. Keep going. Rest in him. Walk with him. Sometimes he's going to carry you. Most of the time, he's going to carry you. But here's the great news. He has promised to do that we can be sure that he will. So look to Christ and look forward to his glorious return and look forward to that eternity with him. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these future things, as we consider the way uh, they are sure, uh, because you have already uh, in that immediate context shown us how sure they are in the destruction and your judgment on Jerusalem, uh, Lord, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, that, that all you have said will come to pass. And so knowing that, Father, I pray you would uh, fix these truths in our hearts and help us to live accordingly. Help us to live as your people. Help us to rest in the reality of what you have done. Uh, Lord, we don't want to face persecution. We don't want to face hardships or bad times. And Lord, we pray that those won't come. Uh, But Lord, the truth is, is you have not uh, promised us, you have not told us, shot away from that. You have not distanced us from that, but you have told us that that's the reality of living the Christian life. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that when it does come, that that we would be able to stand in what you have done, that you would give us courage and strength, that you would give us the words to say as you promised to. Uh, And, Lord, we pray that that through that faithful witness, the witness of your church, the witness of your people, uh, that Jesus' name would be glorified. Uh, that people would bow to him and worship him as the only Savior, the only Redeemer. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.